0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders around the human experience. I'm
1: Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior with our guests that will improve your relationships, your well being, and your organization. From best selling authors to researchers to leaders in nonprofits, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, specifically from psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. And in this episode, Tim and I spoke to the author
0: and behavioral finance guru, Daniel Crosby. Daniel is a rare bird. He's trained as a psychologist, but found his groove when he started applying his behavioral knowledge to the world of financial decision-making. He was named one of the 12 thinkers to watch by Monster.com and a top 40 under 40 by Investment News. Not too shabby there, Mr. Houlihan. Not Not too shabby. So he is definitely making his mark on the financial as well as the behavioral science world.
1: Yeah, it is. It is really cool. Daniel is also the author of the bestseller, uh, The Laws of Wealth. But we wanted to talk with him about his latest book, The Behavioral Investor. We found the book to be like the perfect confluence of behavioral sciencey stuff and a set of rock solid investment tips. Daniel... In the book examines the sociological, neurological, and psychological factors that influence our investment decisions and shares practical solutions for improving both returns and behaviors. We
0: talked about stress and performance, happiness and wealth, and some of what Daniel calls meta biases. Ooh. Ooh, you're going to have to wait towards the end of the conversation to hear about. Meta biases.
1: Ooh, have to wait. Yeah, okay, because <laughs> it's a good <laughs> teaser. Uh, and I just have to say that it's always a pleasure logging into a call and seeing a few very, very fine guitars hanging on the on the wall, which Daniel had behind him, which was just yeah, and, and very and cool. I,
0: I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I would have noticed that you were jazzed about that. (laughs) Would would that be something that Tim would get excited about guitar? Oh, my gosh. Yes.
1: It's it's just so rare. It was just really (laughs) fun.
0: It is not. This is the interesting piece, Tim. It is more common. And I don't know if it's just the guests that we have or what it is. But, man. I would say a good 20% of the people that we talk yeah. to have guitars and the background of whatever they do I think you just pick those musical
1: guests that we have <laughs> I, I am because mm. that's that's I mean, that's what I love to talk about so alright well yeah. there you go
0: okay yeah. so uh, with that Groovers <laughs> we'll ask you to sit back and relax with a hefty pint of behavioral finance and listen to our conversation with Daniel Crosby
1: Daniel Crosby, welcome to Behavioral Grooves.
2: Tim and Kurt, great to be here.
1: We are glad to have you, and we're going to get started with a speed round. And I want to start by just finding out real quickly: Do you prefer coffee or tea?
2: Um, I have never had coffee in my life, uh, and I find tea disgusting unless it is loaded with sugar. And so, <laughs> true, what's your drink of choice then? Diet Coke. Yeah, yeah Diet Coke. <laughs> I mean, true, true, oh. true to my southern roots. I am unhealthy in my eating habits and am a Coke loyalist. So there you go. Diet Coke every morning gets me going. Not not even sweet tea, huh? I know I like sweet tea. If it's loaded with if it's loaded with Splenda like some good mint iced tea, <laughs> but like warm tea <laughs> tastes like lawn clippings and I'm out. So <laughs> cold iced tea with tons of fake sugar. Okay, um, and you've never had coffee. I never have. It's maybe. it's against my it's against my religion. I've never had coffee. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Good. All yeah. right.
1: Me too, by the way. Yeah. I'm just going to raise my hand on that. Yeah. Know, yeah. Well, the, yeah. I, you
0: know, Tim, you're weird. <laughs> uh, Daniel, I don't think is. So I'm just wondering, you know, that, that, that's, that's a different there. There's,
2: there's no thing as a psychologist who's not weird, but yes, I digress.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mac and cheese ice cream. Good idea or not?
2: So, Van, you're you're responding to my tweet that said, you know, every day we stray <laughs> further from God's light, or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, that Van Leeuwen's ice cream—I'm maybe saying it wrong—but Van Leeuwen's ice cream is the best ice cream I've ever had. Like, as like the brand, they have a honeycomb okay. ice cream. Free free promotion here for Van Leeuwen's. Their honeycomb ice cream is the best ice cream I've ever had. And I worked at Baskin Robbins, gentlemen. I know ice cream. And, uh, yeah, right. But that said, I wouldn't touch mac and cheese ice cream with a 10 foot pole.
0: <laughs> OK, and I can I can uh, ag- agree with you 100 percent on that. There's just some wow. things that should not be put into ice cream. And that would be one of them.
2: Yes.
1: Here is the last food question. Which has the better taco? Taco Shack in Fort Lauderdale or puestos in San Diego?
2: Well, uh, I have never been to Fort Lauderdale, so I'm going to go with San Diego. Tacos are Austin. Austin's the only city that consistently gives San Diego a run for its taco money. So uh, by default, Ah. I'm going to go with San Diego. San Diego and Austin are my two favorite places to get a taco, though.
1: Terrific.
0: Terrific. Well, awesome. There you go. Last question. Can you understand capital markets without understanding human behavior?
2: You cannot, as I wrote in The Behavioral Investor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: the alley-oop, Kurt with the alley-oop. No, I think that uh, people are the individual units of uh, of of capital markets. And so you can't understand markets until you understand people. So thank you for the, for the alley-oop there, my friend
0: you know that that's that's what we try to do here we 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 try to give you the easy shots so you know well, th- tell us a little bit more about that because that that is a really interesting concept right you think about behavioral markets it's finance it's different things why do i have to understand how humans act right that that seems you know not necessarily 100% aligned but yet it, when what you say in the behavioral investor and kind of the the, the concept that you bring i think is very very on target. So can you help our listeners understand that a little bit better?
2: Yeah, so in the behavioral investor, I, I waxed pretty philosophical at you know early on in the book, which I'm sure turned off more, more than a few people. but I felt like it was it was sort of the appropriate way to start the book because I think most people think of uh, economics and finance as sort of an analytical, hard science, mathematically derived business. But when you look at all the constituent parts of, of finance, whether it be, you know, a a Black-Scholes model or a hedge fund or a credit swap or whatever it is, all of these things down to, you know, a Bitcoin or a dollar, all of these things are based on trust. All of these things are based on human nature. They were all human uh, manufactured and they are all human destroyed. So they, they live and die with our best and worst impulses. Uh, they were made by humans. They're kept afloat by humans. Uh, they are rendered useful by the mutual agreement of humans. And so, uh, you can't really talk about these things in a, in a coherent way without an understanding of of human nature, uh, both at the individual and the and the group level. You know, so as a psychologist, mm. you know, I got more training in in sort of the individual level. I'm a clinical psychologist by by education. And, uh, I've had to, you know, I've had to spend more, more time on sort of the social psych piece of things because individuals and and groups act differently. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. How did you get interested in behavioral finance?
2: So, um, I was in my, uh, graduate program in psychology. I was getting, getting my PhD in psychology. And as part of that, you have to meet with thousands of folks. I mean, you have to do thousands of hours of sort of face-to-face client work. And I didn't like it. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it. I, I didn't like it, and it was okay. really, It was it was eating me up, like that. That was the bigger that was the bigger thing was that I was just taking work home with me. You know, you you would see a client mm. on Friday, and, and you wouldn't know if they were going to be there on Monday, right? I was working with unrepentant sex offenders. I mean, you just you know you you see people who are having the worst day of their life you know every single one of your clients is in immense pain you know part of your job in a very literal sense is to is to take that pain from them and to empathize deeply with that pain uh, and then some of the folks that were sort of court mandated for, for me to work with didn't want to be there were very tough to deal with had done atrocious things and I was just like wow. eh. you know uh, my, my thought was, there's a piece of this that I love. I love connecting with people. I love thinking deeply about human behavior. I love studying the, you know, the, the inner workings of the human mind, but I had to take a more expansive view. I think when you grow up, I mean, I was 23 when I started my PhD mm. program. And so you have a very sort of one-dimensional view of what it is to be a psychologist. And it's to wear tweed and have people lie on a shaved lounge and, you know, tell you about their parents. And so I had to take a more expansive, you know, a more expansive view of what it meant to be a psychologist. And luckily, my dad is a financial advisor. And my dad said, hey, you know, there's a ton of psychology in, in the work that I do. And I was like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, yeah. you're- you know, cause cause at twenty three I had it figured out. But I'm like, you know, you pick mutual funds for people. <laughs> like and, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that sort of started a conversation with him. That long story short, introduced me. He, he didn't know to call it behavioral finance, but, you know, he pointed me in the direction of what I would eventually discover to be behavioral finance. So the seeds were, were sort of planted in my discontent with with clinical work, but my love more broadly of of behavioral science.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. We had a conversation um, with Richard Thaler, not to throw names out, um, but we, we had a conversation with Richard Thaler. He was talking about behavioral economics, and he said, you know, our first- naming nomenclature for that was behavioral finance because that's where that work was being done at the beginning of behavioral economics and i think it really is this aspect of applying these behavioral insights into the way that people interact and are influenced by how they they work with money and i think that's what you really highlight very well in in the book Um, actually in in multitudes of your books so um, just wondering about that. Why should people care about behavioral finance and what what makes a difference in that part?
2: Yeah, well, they should they should care about it for for two reasons. Like I'll start with the least important reason and work my way to the more important. Uh, the, the lesser of the two reasons is that it's critical for you to reach any of your financial goals. Like the be- mm. <laughs> you know, the best predictor the best predictors of whether or not you are financially solvent, whether or not you're financially successful, are are all behavioral. It's really sort of unsexy behavioral stuff that that time and time and again is found to be profoundly more impactful, like five times more impactful in the literature than things like stock picking. So, you know, I did some research yesterday and it's like from, from 1972 to present, um, if you had invested ten thousand dollars in value stocks, it became about two million dollars. Um, if you had bought and held it, right? If you had invested ten thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars, if you had invested ten thousand dollars in growth stocks, it was like one point eight million dollars. Uh, if you had bought gold, which is usually a very crummy investment, right? So if you had bought gold, it was nearly four hundred thousand dollars. And the average investor mm-hmm. over that time, had gotten like $240,000, right? Had turned their 10 into <laughs> 240, where by doing nothing, they could have turned it into 2 million or 1.8 million, right? So we spend all this time wow. arguing about, should I buy gold? Should I buy American stocks? Should I buy foreign stocks? You know, Should I buy 60-40, 70-30, 80-20? We we sort of argue around the periphery of this sort of financial minutia, which is sort of sexy but unimportant. When the investment problem has been solved, like it it truly doesn't matter. Like some things are going to be better than others, but there's no way to to know you know sort of a priori which will be better. You know which one will be better than the next. So just diversify and hold on. So yeah, that's one reason is the things that you think matter about finance actually matter very little. And your behavior within your finances matters a great deal. The second reason, and I think the more important reason, is because it can become a mirror uh, onto yourself and your behavior that can improve every other part of your life. You know, the process of becoming Mm -hmm. a good behavioral investor, money is sort of necessary but not sufficient to have a good life. And for someone who talks about money all the time, I really don't like it or care for it that much or find it all that useful beyond just sort of, you know, helping me clothe my family and feed my family and, and keep me warm and, and fed. So, you know, you, you need it to make good money, but it can also teach you how to be a parent. It can also teach you how to be a, a mm. spouse or a partner. It can teach you how not to be a jerk at work. You know, it can it can teach you how to make better decisions of all sorts, many that are profoundly more important than you know picking a value fund over a growth fund. So, long winded answer, you you need it to to make money, uh, but more than that, you need it to to move through the world in in a kind, gentle, thoughtful way.
1: Does that in some ways connect to uh, Betsy Stevens and uh, Justin Wolfers' work on how our subjective well being? Actually, does increase above that seventy five thousand dollar mark? You know that this whole you know myth around seventy five thousand dollars that I, I shouldn't say myth, but you know the the work that Kahneman did years ago. Right. You know that these guys have kind of gone beyond that. Is there is there some correlation there, Daniel?
2: Yeah, I think there is a correlation, but you know the the sort of more nuanced work that they've done shows that it matters, but still not in the ways that we think it does. Right? It's still yeah. not buying a a, a Lamborghini. It's still not buying a bigger house. It really has more to do with comfort and sort of self-assessment and keeping score with self, I think, in a lot of uh, important ways. So the $75,000 study was always a little too good, like just like a little too simple, I think. But yeah. still money doesn't work the way that most people think it does. Morgan Housel wrote a great book on the psychology of money this year. And he calls it, I think, I think I'm saying this right, he calls it the like the, you know, the rich man in the car phenomenon. Right. So like you buy a Lamborghini because you think that everybody's gonna look at you and go, sweet, that guy's sweet. But everyone looks at you and goes, that car is sweet, that guy's an idiot. Right, and they're, they're, they're <laughs> better, <you know? laughs> they 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 want what you have, but they don't think better of you. So I think a lot of people care about money uh, as a way, it's sort of like liquid happiness, or sort of you know a, a tangible way to keep score. And it just simply doesn't work in in the way that people think it does. Which is not to say that it doesn't buy some happiness and, and improve well being. It it absolutely does. But um, not not in the way that people think of it as sort of a panacea that's going to get them respect.
0: Yeah, I think that goes back to some of Dan Gilbert's work and, you know, talking about we we are horrible at forecasting what is going to bring us happiness and the idea that, oh, if I just get that next promotion, if I just get that Lamborghini, if I just get, you know, a big uh, pay raise, I'm, I'm going to be happy. And that's not he shows that that typically isn't the case. And so it's that that misconception between what we believe will make us happy and what actually makes us happy, I think is cool. And I was really fascinated by when you talked about the two reasons that people should be cared. And you talked about this mirror into yourself. I'm wondering, are you in your, your, because you're writing about behavioral investment and behavioral finance pieces, but are you secretly trying to slip in some like, Self help, not self help, is the wrong word. Um, You know, some insights into how to have a better life beyond just the financial part. When you're when you're writing the the books
2: that you're writing, yeah, is that
0: purposeful or is that just a, a subset of what happens because of the the nature of the the information?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't think I can help myself. First of all, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I am. I mean, helping I, others, helping others understand yeah. when you, you know, they, yeah. they read this book and they're going, oh, I can apply this in my finance, but actually this is a bigger, has a bigger impact. I should be thinking about this from my family and from my work and job and various other fa- facets.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't help myself. I'm a psychologist first and foremost. I don't <laughs> identify as like working in finance. I identify as the, the guy in the tweed. but you know, I just think you know i don't think i'll ever write another financial book again um ah. i don't think i'll ever write another financial book again cuz i just don't think it's that important right like i've written 3 now yeah if you don't know now then i don't know what to tell you right i mean it's it's <laughs> and it's it's not the most important thing i just think there's so many more important things i think money is sort of a hygiene consideration right to use the to use the psych term mm-hmm. Right. You need it. Right. You need it to sort of cover your bases and to not be sad. Uh, but it's um, yeah, there's there's bigger, better things that we can do with behavioral science.
0: Well, your your first book, and I think it was your first book, you know, you're not that great. Right. It wasn't a it wasn't a behavioral finance book. It was just this this great book about this concept of we have a false sense of who we are and how good we are at things at bringing behavioral biases into play, which is fascinating. (laughs) I loved it. Um, And so how did that lead into then this this other work that you did? I guess that's probably a a roundabout question, but just uh, again, thinking like, how do you apply these behavioral science principles into the world that you're working in?
2: Yes, so I got invited to give a TEDx talk and in putting it together, I'm like, okay, what do I wanna say? Cause this is back before having given a TEDx talk was embarrassing. This is back when TEDx was still cool, <laughs> like 12 years ago or something, before like everyone had given a TEDx talk. I was still proud of it then, right? So, so I'm like, this is my, this is my shot, right? This is my shot. And what am I gonna say? And when I started to look at sort of the, the thread that, that ran through my, you know, my various successes and failures, personally, I found that I was more successful when I sort of owned my own mediocrity, when I sort Mm. of owned my own fallibility, my own sort of 50th percentile vibe, and just like owned it and, and, and didn't try and act as though I was special. So, you know, in doing the research for that, I actually found that there was something to this. Right, you know, it's uh, Carol Dweck's work on you know complimenting kids for the mm-hmm. wrong thing. I'm absolutely of that gold star generation. I was the generation where we got gold stars for everything, and everyone was gifted, and you know everyone was special, and they were trying to to you know sort of bolster our spirits. And the meta analysis on all of that sort of self confidence research, on all the self esteem research rather, found that first of all like less than 2% of them met any sort of rigor, rigorous criteria for for inclusion in the study like there was just a ton of junk science and then even among the ones oh, that were that included God. it was predictive of nothing like it wasn't predictive of you know crime marital satisfaction you know reoffense you know academic achievement it was predictive of nothing and they effectively found that we have great BS meters, right? Like we know when we're being lied to, we know when we're being patronized and given a gold star, even though we kind of slacked off. And so what they found in that research was that there's, there's really no substitute for taking a risk, working hard, falling on your face sometimes, getting up, dusting yourself off and succeeding. Like there's no shortcut to self-esteem, right? And like we want, we want people who are kind and gentle and good to us, right? I mean, the opposite is not the path to self-esteem either. Uh, but people have a really strong sense of, of when they're being lied to. So that's what you're not that great is, is all about. It's like this handful of different ways in which sort of owning your own lack of specialness can help you. Because we found that people who sort of insist on being special are less ethical, right? We found mm. that they're hardworking. We find that they they are, are uh you know more racist, like all, all sorts of negative, you know, all sorts of negative outcomes. You know, there's a story in there about Bernie Madoff that I that I share in the mm. book too. People forget Bernie Madoff was mad rich before he started ripping people off. You know, Bernie <laughs> Madoff invented the technology that went on to become NASDAQ. Like, I mean, he was super, super rich. He was a multi, multi tens and tens and tens of millionaire, but he didn't feel special, right? He, I forget his exact line, but he's like, you know, I was the little Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Like he never sort of felt embraced by sort of the Wall Street billionaire boys club. And so because he didn't feel special and he didn't feel embraced, he sort of went to great lengths to to try and be special. And we we show in the book how lots of times, People who insist on this sort of crown of specialness will will achieve it by any means necessary. So it it was a it was an interesting concept. You know that TED talk I've given three TEDx talks now. That was my most popular. Each one after is less popular than the one before. So um, that's the one to watch. We've <laughs> stopped. I just I peaked. No, no more TED talks. Yeah, yeah. No more TED talks. Ten <laughs> people. If I did another one, 10 people would watch it. It would be a nightmare.
0: <laughs> That's about how many people listen to the show. So there you go.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you know, I love that. I love, the, I love your, your comment here that uh, there's no shortcut for self-esteem. And and I'm just thinking about uh, a comment that you made about how stress impacts our decision making. And I wonder, is, is there a sort of a relationship between the amount of stress that we can endure in bolstering our, our self-esteem versus too much that ends up degrading our self-esteem.
2: Yeah. So is there, is there sort of a right amount of stress to, to get that? Maximal? Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you look at stress and performance, it, it operates on an inverted U curve, right? So if you have, you know, stress on one axis and performance on the other, it's sort of an inverted U. So you look at people who have no stress, like they never brush the Dorito crumbs off their chest and go about their day, right? Like they're not high performing (laughs) because because, you know because they're so they're so unstressed that uh, you know they're they're horrible performers. But you also look at people who are under great stress; their performance tanks as well, and it's not as fun as the Doritos and the PlayStation, right? So you look at I'm a big baseball (laughs) fan. I'm a big baseball fan and what you, what you find is like Barry, Barry Bonds, like as he was approaching his ill-gotten home run record, his home run rate fell to nothing, right? Like as he got within one, two, three home runs, he goes from hitting a home run, you know, every 25 at bats to every 200 at bats because that level of stress tanks your performance. So yeah, in general, and again, like how do you measure stress? How do you think about stress personally? How does it interact with sort of your own individual differences in your own constitution? That's something we all have to figure out. But as sort of a gentle, general mental framework, you want a, a medium amount of stress, right? A medium mm-hmm. amount of stress. All the happiness research, right? All the happiness research, people, people's idea of what happiness looks like is laying on a beach with a drink right but but actual happiness as we study it has elements of hard work in it and and so people don't understand that like you do want some stress some stress is conducive to self-esteem and performance and happiness Yeah, i want to go
0: back to the behavioral investor and talk a little bit about some of the insights from there so it in that you you As you mentioned earlier, you set the stage, some philosophical kind of components in various different aspects. But you also start talking about uh, ego, conservatism, attention and emotion. And those are kind of four kind of ground, you know, setting pieces of this. Can you overview for our listeners and maybe highlight something uh, that what those mean and, and how they get implied?
2: Yeah. So you you name-checked Richard Thaler. I'll do the same here, except mine's not as cool because I didn't meet him. I just stole his idea, right? So, so, <laughs> so you know, when, when Thaler was talking about sort of his list, when, when he was creating his list of, of all the behavioral biases yep. and, and how they sort of deviated from rational expectations, you know, he and Kahneman and the other folks who were, were contributors to that, you know, they're, they're like, you don't study memory, you study forgetting. Right. And so what what I did was I looked, I went the same path. I stood on the shoulders of those giants and I said, "Okay, here's these behavioral biases. And there's like an unruly number of them now. Right. There's nearly 200, depending on whose list you're looking at. And it's kind of just like biases upon biases upon biases. And I would have financial advisors who are my primary clients you know trying to teach their clients and they're like you know hey welcome Mr and Mrs Smith like have a seat glad to be working with you here at Crosby Capital to get started there's 200 ways that you can screw this up right and it just wasn't a very, <laughs> <laughs> and it just wasn't a very empowering message like you know one it was just sort of overwhelming and then two it was just unruly like how can you create a risk management system that accounts for 200 individual biases, right? You can't. And so what I set out to do, you know, what I set out to do in the, in the behavioral investor is sort of examine what I'll call meta biases. What are sort of the, what are sort of the big daddy biases that underpin many, many under other biases. And I, I entered that investigation without any preconception of, of how many I'd come out with, ended up with four. So Ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism. So ego is the various flavors of overconfidence, right? It's thinking we're better than the next person, smarter, luckier, more prescient about the future. It has, you know, many flavors, but but all of them sort of have overconfidence at at the root. And this is sort of the bias that enables every other bias. Because until we learn to (laughs) say, you know, until we learn to say, I'm not that great, you don't even take the initiative to to look at the others. So ego is the the biggest, baddest one of them all. Uh, emotion is just what you just assume. It's sort of privileging the the heart over the head when making uh, when making financial decisions. So attention is privileging what is loud over what is likely. You know, this has to do my my favorite stat from the book uh, in, in this facet was that uh, there's. <laughs> There's more deaths every year by an order of magnitude from people taking selfies than from shark attacks. And yet, you know, we're, we're far more worried about the, the shark attack than, than taking the selfie. And the last one is conservatism, which is sort of confusing what we know and what we're familiar with uh, and what's safe with what is actually good. So things like status quo bias, uh, things like home bias and in investing, things of that sort of flavor. So those are the four. Those yeah. are the four big ones. I think if you can get those right with your money, uh, you'll you'll go a long way. So
0: going back to you talked about attention and and just trying to pull some you know current things. So is that the over kind of emphasis today? And maybe like Bitcoin and NFTs is that part of that aspect? Would you lump that in together with that, or is that part of a, a bigger aspect of it?
2: No, it, it, it absolutely is. And it's, you know, the thing about attention, there's there's all sort of these sub-biases, right? So something like mere exposure effect, people, yeah. people equate what they've heard of with what's good and what's safe, right? So like, how much did we hear about Dogecoin and ANC <laughs> and GameStop and all this? And like, I mean, I looked at Dogecoin this morning because someone was crying in their beer about how they'd done. And it's like, oh my God, it's down 80%. Because of course it is. It's nonsense. So, like, you know, (laughs) you know, so but but people don't know that, right? Like people just know, oh, I'm hearing about this on the news, right? It's got my attention, so it's loud, so it must be good. Like I've heard of it. And it's the same reason that Coca-Cola advertises, right? I mean, Coca-Cola doesn't really need to advertise, like babies can pick out the Coke, you know, the Coke logo, but just, you know, <laughs> staying, staying in front of us, right. Staying sort of in our constant periphery makes us think that it's good, that it's worthwhile, that it's, that it's worth having. And in the, in the case of diet Coke, that is all true. <laughs> we,
0: we, like uh, we're the Coke zero folks. So oh, both Tim and I zero drink too. Coke I don't zero. So
2: yeah,
1: which I, which i understand is going to change. Do i do i have that right? I have I've read that uh, Coca-Cola wants to change the recipe on Coke Zero. If again, if, like didn't we do this in 1984 with with the real Coke or whatever yeah. that was? New Coke?
2: <laughs> New <only>, Coke. <laughs> if only there were some precedent for changing the formula and having rioting in the streets, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if only
0: If only, oh my so god. That's conservative.
2: Let's have a learning moment. That's conservatism, right? So if you go, if you visit my beautiful uh, home, home. Well, not my home. My home is Alabama, but the city where I live now. If if you come visit Atlanta, go to the Coke, uh, the Coke tourism factory thing there, right? Like the Coke thing downtown, the Coke factory downtown. It is the most incredible lesson in marketing, like behavioral marketing and halo effect and, you know, psychology of color, everything. It's like a whole, you got to bring the podcast down there and do a whole lesson. But they have a whole, whole room dedicated to this new Coke debacle. And what's wild is people preferred new Coke to Coke classic three to one. In in blind Mm -hmm. taste tests. So there is a better version of Coke out there that we can't have because we can't have nice things as a human race because we're so wed, right? We're so wed to the things that we know. And that's conservatism. It's, I lived in Canada for a summer, right? Like I lived in Canada for a summer, which was the best summer of my life because the weather's glorious and Canadians are nicer than we are. And so when I was out there, you know, Canada represents 3% of the world's economy. And it's like a pretty specific 3%. There's lots of oil, there's lots of commodities, like oil and gas and uh, trees and stuff like that. The average Canadian's allocation to, uh, to Canadian stocks is like 80%. And you know, that's true everywhere. So like, Years ago, when Greece was having a monetary crisis, Greek folks own majority Greek stocks. Greece is not a well-diversified economy. Canada is not a well-diversified economy, right? But they own these things in huge numbers because they confuse knowing it with it being safe. So yeah, that's the Coke lesson. There's a better Coke out there. So let's not (laughs) screw this up. When When they roll out the new Coke Zero, let's be big about it. Let's give it a shot. And try not to mess this one up.
1: (laughs) It reminds me of a conversation we had with Barry Ritholtz about he even noticed that regionally, like within the United States, that there are more people in the Midwest that are invested in farm and agriculture related stocks than on the West Coast where there's more tech stock investment. You know, these these regional differences even exist. And man, that that availability bias is just so strong. Mm-hmm. It's the homerism.
0: It's it's like why do you like your your hometown baseball team or your home? You know, it's like uh, that that team has changed from when you were a kid. It's probably different ownership. It's probably different players, different managers. But yet you still like. Oh nope, this is my team. Even if the you know the the heroes that you once worshipped are no longer there, it's
2: it, I I fully go with that. Right the the, the name of my hometown minor league team. Is the Rocket City Trash Pandas? So I think it's self-evident. <laughs> I think it's self-evident why I like them.
0: <laughs> I, I can understand that. There's a there's a cultural wow. component that I think is probably transmuted across the whatever who was who's ever there, right there.
2: I was at Cape Cod with my then three year old daughter who had a little raccoon. And so everyone would come up to her in her, you know, stroller or walking around and she'd be like, oh, do you have a raccoon? And she would go, no, it's a trash panda. And these poor people (laughs) from Cape Cod did not know what had hit them. They were not familiar with Southernism.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. I I cannot wait to actually start talking about music with you, but... You have something to say about ethics. You you care about the ethical use of these tremendously powerful tools, and I was wondering if there are if you have some kind of a rubric or or uh, a way that you think about what is ethical and what is not. What, what is a, an appropriate application of of some of these tools? I was wondering if you could share some of that, Daniel
2: you know um you're you've exposed a, a growth area for me because while i do uh, very much care about ethics and even preface many of my presentations you know when i'm talking about influence or motivation and things like this i'm like look you can use this for for good or ill so you got to kind of like promise me you're not going to screw this up but that's about as far as i get i mean i'll be honest i don't have sort of I don't have like my my eight pillars, you know, carved in stone that are that are, you know, how I think about the ethics of, of behavioral science. So I'm with you that it's that it's incredibly important. And, you know, uh, Thaler and Sunstein and those guys have have coined this term sludge for sort of unethical uses of behavioral science. And honestly, it's a bit like the sort of famous uh, Supreme Court pornography ruling—like you know it when you yep. see it, right? You know, when you're trying to sell more cigarettes, like that's probably sludge, right? You know, when you're trying, when you're uh, there was a there was a director of behavioral science at Joule job open recently that was getting a lot of sort of conversation uh, in the behavioral science community because it's like, well, do you want to go help more people vape? Like, like is that like a good you know, is that a good application of, of behavioral science? But, you know, I mean, I'm not curing cancer either. Right. Like, I mean, it's, you know, I think a lot of us are are applying these things in ways that are, uh, you know, that, that are helping our companies or selling more of widget X. And so uh, it's, it's nothing that honestly I've, I've sort of put in writing, but I think it's something that it's a question that needs to be asked.
0: And it's, it's, interesting in my perspective because there's definitely that that pornography piece but then there's also this like where does where does the line get drawn and i i go back to the new i think it was the new yorker article on uber and how they were applying behavioral science in with the the app that their drivers used and you know that said they set a a daily target and then they have you know how many more rides do you need to hit that daily target and and you know the the accept button was big and green obviously mm. versus the you know the the decline button was grayed out and all of these facets that I'm going all right that they still to to the nudge components they still had choice they still had there and and they're actually trying to apply to the goal that they've set for themselves but you know some people saw that as hey you're you're manipulating these drivers you're you're getting them to drive when they shouldn't be driving and when they don't want to drive anymore and so there's there's this nuance that comes into this too of like where is that line you know put in the sand and is it movable and, and all of those facets. So I it's hard pressed to say there's a rubric that you can just say all right check these five boxes off and you're going to be fine because I think there's going to be a lot of discussion on it moving forward.
2: Well, one hundred percent. I mean, even go back to sort of the, the the seminal work on on organ donation. You know, so the. Mm. the default checkbox for organ donation like do you think all those people who who defaulted into donating their organs would have like in a, in a in a true 50/50 scenario like I don't know that they would right so does yeah. to the ends justify the means? Does the fact that we get lots of organs for, for folks who are in need justify the means by which we you know got them? Uh, that's a that's a even in a case that seems righteous, like, I think there's, there's conversation to be had there, uh, you know, a, a plenty and yeah, I, you know, yeah. Yeah.
0: Mr. Music, I know you want to, you want to talk music. So
2: yes, I do. I want to know
1: what a, a Tweety psychologist with a 59 gold top behind them is listening to these days. What's on your playlist?
2: So right now we're spinning a lot of Phoebe Bridgers at the Crosby household. Are we familiar with Phoebe Bridgers? Love just, her. Yes. That's incredible. Like, yeah, it's like Elliot Smith reincarnated. If you love Elliot Smith, Phoebe Bridgers is just killer. Just like sort of haunting acoustic music. Radiohead is my, my favorite band. I I actually met my wife over a shared affinity for Radiohead. So I love Radiohead, and you know, owe them a great debt of gratitude. Let's see, <laughs> <laughs> love. Uh, I'm I'm sort of frozen in amber, right, in my college years. So I love I love the Arcade Fire. I love Radiohead. I love Father John Misty. I love Vampire wow. Weekend and uh, Phoebe Bridgers. I think those are the things. And then at the gym, Run the Jewels, Atlanta Zone. Well, fifty percent Atlanta Zone, Run the Jewels.
0: It's it's fascinating. We uh Trevor Falk who we were interviewing earlier about the rudeness thing that we talked prior to the, the show, uh also has done work on music and and at work and there's some background research again that most of the, the the music that we listen to that we tend to put in our playlists and different things are from those very formative years that we we get anchored in on those. And actually there was some other work by uh
1: Seth uh yeah, I so always get Seth Stevens Davidowitz uh yeah. took uh, some of Elizabeth Kim's work from uh, from Spotify and they they looked at at who, you know, they gave and, and they they teed up four thousand songs from every age group. What were the most powerful or the most listened to songs from women at th- at 30, 31, 32, 33 men, et cetera, all these different years. Found out that what was it? Women were mostly 13 year old. Like they were listening to songs when, when... Yeah,
0: they were 13 years old when that song came out and it was men were 14 years old 14 when the, when the song old, yeah. came out. So, you know, we, we fall back into those, those so patterns. Uh, of... A bit of a late bloomer
1: there, Daniel. That's, well,
2: that's <laughs> true. and That's true in many respects, but you know, that, for, for me, grad school, like grad school was when I had the most time to spend on yeah. pitchfork right? You know, that's when I could go to Pitchfork and really explore music and avoid writing my dissertation. So like, you know, getting <laughs> really sort of digging deep in the crate, so to speak, for music was something I did in grad school in, in a way that I had never done it before. And so that all that grad school music really stuck. And it was just a good time in my life. You know, it was a good time in my life. And I think you want to sort of harken back to that you know, but before I had a mortgage time. So (laughs) do you, do you write uh, with, with a couple
1: of guitars on your, on your wall? Do you write music,
2: compose songs? They look pretty. No, they, um, I, during the pandemic. So I started playing guitar when I was 16, I was in a punk band called society's hemorrhoid and (laughs) hemorrhoid. Ooh. Yeah. We thought, we thought we were very cool. I had like blue hair and we spelled hemorrhoid phonetically because we thought that was more punk. Like we knew how to spell it, but we spelled it (laughs) phonetically (laughs) because we thought that was cooler. So, um, I've played guitar for a very long time, but I've been sort of slack in my practice during the last year and a half. I really got down to it again in a very systematic way. And I started to, uh, you know, composes maybe too grandiose a word, but I've started to like play little loops and and little ditties and and, and practice every day. So I'm working towards greater, uh, you know, greater creativity in that area. And you know, it's like anything—you got to learn the building blocks. You got to learn the, you know, the the scales and the building blocks first, and then you can riff and become creative and, and improvise. So I'm trying to firm up my foundation a little bit because. Uh, as you might suppose, Society's Hemorrhoid was not the classical music training that it might have been otherwise. <laughs> it didn't get you into your pentatonic scales, huh? No, no. It didn't go from Society's Hemorrhoid to Juilliard, as it turns out. Uh, so, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and do you ever listen to music while you're working?
2: Never. I can't. Um, I can't, I I can't listen to music while I'm working. It's too distracting to me for whatever reason. I listen to music when I'm cooking. I cook a lot. Um, I listen to music, certainly when I work out, I'm powerless if I don't have music when I work out or even when I walk. But yeah, I can't do it while I'm working. I'm I'm not that good. I need all every every last brain cell to focus on the work.
0: It's interesting. We ask that question to pretty much every guest we have, and, and it's about a 50-50 split. I think we need to go back and actually look at that. But it's it's yeah. pretty fascinating because there are some people who definitely are like you. You and Tim are both the same way, you know, not, can't listen to, to music. I, on the other hand, can listen to music and sometimes actually prefer to listen to music when I'm working because it helps, I think, for me on some focus and different aspects. But, yeah, it's it's interesting the different how people work and what is distracting to them versus what is kind of ca- calming and focusing and allowing them to to, to get into their uh, information better. So
2: when I was in grad school and, and writing my dissertation, I, I did most of it in the mall food court because I oh wanted at like off times though. So I'd go at like two oh. thirty, you know, and I, you know, I'd go at like two thirty, get a drink, sit there for two or three hours and work on stuff. And it was just like a low roar, right? Just like enough distraction to be pleasant, not so much that it's sort of the sights and smells are drowning it out. But music is too much for me. Like music's too structured. It's too loud. It's too whatever. I need sort of a dull dull roar in the background. And
1: too damn distracting for me. It's like any, any kind of melody, any, you know, even, even, even just a a melody is just too much. Like, it's like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta hear that. Where's that going? Where, you know, what, what kind of chord structure is it over? I just, yeah. Tim,
2: the the thing about guys like us is we're, we're, we're very deep, right? We're very deep. We, we, we're we're so, (laughs) we're so into the music. We're thinking so deeply about it. We could never concentrate on two things. We're too perfectionistic
0: you know you guys are both married you don't have to play the the game anymore about being that musician to go and get a girl you guys you guys are set you don't have to put the, the show on anymore right so oh daniel thank you this has been super informative lots of fun for us and so thank you very much for for joining us here in behavioral groups
2: it was my pleasure thank you both
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Daniel, have a free flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our not that great brains. Ooh. Well, I know my brain is not that great. Yours is pretty good, yeah, you know, but yeah, mine yeah. is definitely not that great. No, no,
1: definitely not. But <laughs> thank uh, you for agreeing with me. No, you no, no, me, to... it's me. No, <laughs> no, I'm agreeing. No, yes, I'm, yes, you're I'm, right, Kurt. You're, you're, your brain is not that great. You're being you go. self-deprecating. <laughs> I mean, it's not about you. It's about me. <laughs>
0: it's not. It's always about me, Tim. Right? We just we just talked about you know our our conversation on Spotlight effect with, with Vanessa Bonds. And so it always yeah. comes back to us thinking it's about us, right? There we go. Exactly. Which is another great episode. So people, if you haven't listened to that one, please make sure you go and listen to that one. Because Vanessa's amazing. Yep. Yes. But we want to bring you a light grooving session today. Ooh. You know, Ooh. it's like a light version that brings you all the flavors of our normal grooving session, but with fewer calories. A bit like Coke Zero, my <laughs> friend. A bit like Coke Zero,
1: Tim. <laughs> near and dear to both of our hearts and near to, dear to, a, to, to Daniel's heart because he lives in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. So and he is actually a Coke fan, which yes. was kind of cool to, to find out. But he cleverly used the lesson of Coke Zero to warn us that, you know what, we might hold an implicit conservatism bias. I thought that was that was pretty like if Coke rolls out a new Coke Zero again. Oh, my God. Can you just please just stop for a while? going to cling very dearly to this original version. There's going to be some serious loss aversion. And I guess I wonder, will we even give it a chance? Well, you and I
0: actually conducted a side-by-side yes, side taste experiment with Coke yep. Zero and the new and improved Coke Zero when we were just down at a, at a work The session that we were doing with some consulting clients of ours. Yep. We were facilitating a session and they had can of the old Coke zero and a can of the new Coke zero. And what did we find?
1: I like the new one better. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I, it's don't. a little sweeter. It is a little sweeter. There you go. Yeah, A little less bite to it as well. Yeah. I liked, I, you know, I kind of like the bite though. Do you like the bite? I don't, I don't miss it. I'm just you know, saying that a, okay. I'm going to go on the record and say, I don't miss it okay. in part because I don't have a damn choice, right? It's, it's done. So <laughs> it's gone. So, uh, Daniel's work in behavioral finance really led him to research these biases in great detail. And he he's whittled down the 200 plus behavioral biases out there to the four big daddy ones, as he calls them.
0: Big daddy. Oh, (laughs) Is that not I thought you're supposed to say big daddy with that big daddy voice. I I should should have.
1: (laughs) I should have. But but it's really important when when we talk about ego, emotion, attention and conservatism. It seems like these are really, really powerful a uh, combination of, of our, or summary of all the big ones that we should focus on the most. And what he found was that at the core of each of these biases was one trait, overconfidence. And Daniel Kahneman even referred to overconfidence as the most significant of the biases. So there we go. To overcome this,
0: Daniel... Daniel Crosby, that is not Danny, Danny Kahneman, who, you know, we go with a first name basis with, right? No, no. no. Daniel encourages us to eat a slice of humble pie, embrace our mediocrity, own the 50th percentile vibe until we're able to say, as he has titled his book, you're not that great. You won't even take the initiative to look at what other biases are coloring
1: our own judgment. Yeah, and then you know, once we're sitting comfortably in our mediocrity, by the way, which could be a great groove. Just gonna Ooh, say that
0: sitting in our mediocrity. I like
1: that. It could yeah. be a song. I could, it could be. We can really You should write that one, by the way. But w-
0: we could really <laughs> notice. Know- I have a lot of experience with that. That's what you're going. I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I can write from my own own life right there.
1: No, but we could really notice what's grabbing our attention from that that point. Right? Do it? Do we hold a conservativist biased Uh, towards what is already familiar? like Do we favor what's right there at the doorstep simply because it's right there on the doorstep? I think Ben Parr even even mentioned this in episode 237 that attention is the modern economy,
0: period. And as Daniel has shown, that we overinvest in what is familiar to us and what grabs our immediate attention, just as Ben Parr has talked about, right? Just because something is familiar doesn't mean that it's safe or it's good, right? Having the self-esteem and belief to venture into something new isn't easy either, but giving a gold star to everyone who completes the race, well, not really motivating. There is no shortcut for self-esteem. And Daniel reminds us that there is no substitute for getting out there, taking a risk, working hard, falling on your face, sometimes falling on your face multiple times. And sometimes getting up and dusting yourself off just in order to make sure that you can succeed.
1: I want to just give some kudos to Mary Califf, our research and production associate, because she found this quote from President Eisenhower that's really, I think, really apropos that he said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again, again, and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. And I I just love that because it's about, you got to be in the, got to be in the game. You, You know, the, the only true Incredible criticism comes from those people who are actually doing it, right? You can't be a spectator and expect to have really have anything to say. Just get in there and just do it.
0: And the good news is that a bit of stress in our lives can actually make us perform better. So we are more productive under the right kind of stresses lying on a beach with a margarita or maybe a Coke Zero in your case, right? Uh, oh, There you yes. go. Yeah, I yep. yeah, get it. Very uh, much so. Yep. I, I brought that back all the way back. Yeah, See, nice nice tie-in. Nice. Yeah, yeah, very nice. <laughs> all right. See, and so, so like laying on the beach with a margarita or a Coke Zero in your place may sound like your idea of happiness. But research shows that some stress is conductive to happiness and to self-esteem. So we need to stress ourselves a little bit. We need to have that in order to actually perform at our top and most effectiveness.
1: So Groovers, go out this week and build your self-esteem. You know, work hard. Work hard, knowing that you're going to make some mistakes, but do it with the confidence that you can just dust yourself off and keep going. Don't get too confident. Of course, I guess there's that risk. Yeah. You know, not it's a okay. problem with us, Tim. Not a problem. <laughs> exactly. With us. exactly. exactly. It's okay to be comfortable with a little bit of mediocrity.
0: Again, that something, something that <laughs> we're good at. We, we are, are really good with our mediocrity. <sighs> sorry. It's the, my, we, it's, we fit perfectly it's my within Daniel's. Oh, it's, I'm sorry. Did I just interrupt your group? No, yeah, <laughs> I'm. am sorry. You were in a group. See, see, I'm making it anyway. Keep going.
1: Sorry, go. You're putting stress on it, which is making me better. So, <laughs> I think it's important that listeners just remember that it's okay to not be great. Right? That not everything has to be great, and your colleagues will find you more approachable with like things like the prattfall effect you'll be easier to relate to you'll be more empathetic and by the way they might even notice that you've gone out and found your groove then listeners please go
0: out and find your groove this week